Welcome to episode 1890 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? If, as you maintain, Dottie, in a league of their own, (laughs) dropped the ball on purpose, (laughs) I ask you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, why did she go out to the mound before the plate appearance with Kit to call for high fastballs because, and I quote, she can't hit them can't lay off them. What happened in between that mound conference and the collision at home plate to change her heart such that she would go from advocating throwing pitches that she knows her sister can't hit to then taking pity on her and rolling over? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be the strongest argument in favor of didn't drop the ball on purpose. I think so at least. That's persuasive. You could say she beat her at her own game. Mm -hmm. She threw the high fastballs. She didn't lay off him, but she did hit him. So she had grown as a player. She had proved herself. She belongs. She stood up. She she answered the challenge. And therefore, she is worthy of scoring and of Dottie pretending to have dropped the ball. I guess that is one possible interpretation. That is an interpretation. Yeah, one could one could uh, engage with that if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will say the creators of A League of Their Own, the TV series, I believe have come out in favor of Dottie did not drop the ball on purpose. Now, that's not canonical. Their opinion carries no more weight about sure. what happened in the movie than ours does. But I was happy to see that they're on the right side of history when it comes to this important question. Yeah. This has uh, been on my mind just because people have been talking about the show and enjoying the show. And we've got a guest related to the show later in this episode. We're going to be talking to Justine Siegel, who has been a boundary-breaking coach in baseball at all levels with women, with men, in the majors and beyond. She founded Baseball for All, and she's also the baseball coordinator for A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime Video. So we've talked to some baseball coordinators before. I know I've had the baseball coordinator of Pitch on a podcast and of Twilight, of course, memorably. So now we're talking to another baseball coordinator. This is a nice little niche for us. Yeah, yeah. I will ask her about the Dottie question. Yes. But otherwise, we should probably drop this or it'll end with us just yelling mule, (laughs) nag at each other. (laughs) No, I would never call you a mule or a (laughs) nag. Come on now. It's a term of affection. Yeah, yeah. When sisters do it. So- You were watching the Angels self-destruct on Monday night against the Mariners. Is that correct? I was not watching live, although I've since brushed up on the gifts. (laughs) What happened? I mean, (laughs) 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 oh, I just feel, you know, it was uncomfortable. It got to a point where it was like uncomfortable to watch. I, I feel like... I'm maybe just going to read from the play log. Yeah, let's... <laughs> I don't know if that could do it justice. Well, I mean, that's know, a like, start. <laughs> it helps yeah. to set the scene, right? It so, does, yes. Well, let me, let me set the scene further. 
It's mm-hmm. it's the top of the ninth inning. The Mariners <laughs> yes. and the Angels are not at two two. I would describe yeah. both Otani and Castillo's starter performances. Like they were not their their very sharpest. Mm-hmm. They were still quite impressive. I think that we should have an appreciation in our in our hearts for like um, very good starters who maybe don't have their absolute best stuff, but still. Mm-hmm grit through, right? They're gritty and they reach yeah. back when they need it. Shohei Otani might just have a new pitch. Like, yeah. you know, we should talk about that at some yeah, point he's here. Yeah, a few of those this year. What you is know? two-seamers? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. just like, hey, let's add, another, <laughs> add another one in here. It's yep. been it's been so easy for you all before now. So, <laughs> so you know, that, that was sort of the evening. There had been home run-related strangeness in this game prior to the ninth inning. There was a ball that ricocheted off of Julio Rodriguez's glove during a, a semi-collision with Mitch Haniger that resulted in a ball being called a home run off the bat of Luis Rangifo. Then Julio had a home run called back uh, that said that the umpire said was foul. Uh, they looked at it and they maintained that opinion, although there are, are Julio home run truthers on Mariners <laughs> Twitter. So, you know, that's out there. And they, the game's all knotted up. And, and the Mariners themselves had had sort of a, a sloppy defensive inning earlier in the game that led to the game being tied. So it was like, yeah, you know, uh, here we are. Okay, so with that yes. scene set, Cal <laughs> Raleigh grounded out to third. Totally normal so far. That's a thing that people do. Cal Raleigh sure does is. that. Also, all sorts of people do that. They ground out to third. Mm-hmm. Then Sam Haggerty singled to left. Now, Sam Haggerty is like, I feel bad about how I have thought of Sam Haggerty, right? Because I think this Mariners team is pretty good. I think that they're a playoff team. I know that in the days leading up to the deadline, one of the things that you and I talked about was how, you know, the the sort of the bottom of their 40 man could have used some reinforcement. And they did some stuff to that effect, right? Like they brought Jake Lamb in. But, mm-hmm. you know, there was there was a while while Julio was hurt and Ty France was hurt and Mitch Haniger wasn't quite back yet. And I think Dylan Moore was on the IL where you were like, wow, like Sam Haggerty is like really factoring in on on this roster in a way that seems Seems bad, you know, because mm-hmm. like Sam Haggerty's end of the bench piece, right? Like that's Sam Haggerty's role. But here's one thing that, that Sam Haggerty is really good at. Ben, are you ready? Very sure. fast. Fast yeah. guy. He is a fast guy. So he singles to left. And he, you know, he was he was playing with Aaron Loop. He was like, oh, I'm playing with you at, at first base. And looked like he was preparing to try to steal second. And Aaron Loop threw a pitch. It ended up buried in the dirt. And Max Jazzy... I assume having seen Sam Haggerty, noted fast guy, kind of playing with Aaron Loop, just assumed that he was going to take off for second base. Sam Haggerty stopped about, (laughs) you know, a third of the way off of first base. That did not stop Max Dazzy from just throwing that ball right into center field. So then Sam Haggerty was like, well, thank you, sir. I shall advance to second. (laughs) So... This is, um, I'm editorializing our game log and uh, play log is, is much leaner than this at Fangraphs, but I'm just relaying what I remember. So he advances to second on an error. Ben, have a have an error counter in your mind, all right? That's error <laughs> yeah. number one. Mm-hmm. Then he steals third base. No error involved. Fine. Then Carlos Santana walks. And here's the thing I'm going to say. I was, it was the end of the evening. I was a little tired. I think that Carlos Santana was gifted a ball four. (laughs) 
don't know if you've gone back and watched this, but there was some confusion about what the count was in this. And so Laz Diaz appeared to get kind of flummoxed by the count. I think that Manny Acta, the Mariners' third base coach, was saying to him, it's 3-1. And Laz was like, it's 2-2. And then Manny was like, it's 3-1. I think it was 2-2. I think it was at 1.22. And then it became 3-1. And then it became Carlos Santana has walked. <laughs> yeah, that is one of my favorite baseball things. Yeah. When- the count just breaks down and yeah. all the universe's laws just are suspended. And I know John Boyce, I believe, has done a video on that. I wrote an article about that for The Ringer. It's just great. And it happens more often than you'd think. Yeah. And I think it might have happened here. I don't want to, you know, like, Laz Diaz gets a lot of grief from a lot of people. So I don't want to unnecessarily heap scorn on Laz Diaz. But I think that maybe, I don't know if, I don't know if Manny Acta was like trying to fool him like if he was up to shenanigans or if he was himself confused or if I was confused totally possible that I just miscounted again it was the end of the day and I was tired anyhow Carlos Santana walks (laughs) that brings Julio Rodriguez to the plate I will remind everyone it is a tie game and right now there are runners on the corners noted fast guy Sam Haggerty less Mm -hmm. fast guy Carlos Santana who the Mariners decided to pinch run for with Dylan Moore who is himself a fast guy so you got two fast guys on the corners right yep Ben, then all hell broke loose. And this is where this is where the hell started, but it was hardly where the hell finished because Julio Rodriguez should have been grounding into a fielder's choice. A really good defense maybe could have just turned two on this and gotten a double play and then bim, bam, bum, Bob's your uncle, the angels are out of the inning. But that's not what happened. No, Instead, it's not. Instead, what happened was, and this is one of those things where I have stopped trying to spend so much time looking at fans making expressive faces in crowds because, you know, like they didn't ask to be on TV and they didn't ask to be in my dumb baseball blog. But I was very tempted here because what happens is Julio Rodriguez grounds into what should be a fielder's choice to the second baseman. But the ball kind of like eats up, I think it's Rangifo, and then Rangifo tries to come home, and Haggerty is away, already partway down the line, and so you think, oh no, Sam Haggerty's goose is cooked, he is done, they are going to get this out at home, but no, instead, <laughs> they try to run him back up the third baseline, but there is no one covering home, because Aaron Loop has like kind of fallen down a little bit. He's like kind of fallen down a little bit. Now I'm watching it again. Yeah, he did kind of fall down a little bit. So he does not get to home fast enough to cover. There is no one at third base. So Dylan Moore makes it to third. Noted fast guy Sam Haggerty has scored. Julio, who thought he was going to maybe be out or had ended the inning, is on first base. So you're sitting there going, oh, no. that Surely that's all. That's the end of the Angels goofing stuff up because – we are now, did they really not, did they really not call an error in that play? We do not have an error in the game lock <laughs> there, but I'm here to tell you that somebody made a terrible mistake. Oh, so yeah. then that brings Ty France up. Ty France. Ty France. Here's the notation in the in the play lock. Ty France reached on fielder's choice and error to shortstop. Dylan Moore scored on error. Julio Rodriguez advances to third base on error. Ty France advances to second. Error by Max Stassi. <laughs> 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 so now it's 4-2. Jesse Winker comes up. He grounds out to third. Julio scores. No errors are committed, but everybody feels bad about themselves, except for the Mariners, who feel great. Mitch Haniger is intentionally walked to score. Is now, at this point, I will remind everyone, 5-2. to two. 
And then J.P. Crawford single to left field. Ty France scores. Mitch Haniger advances to second. And Eugenio Suarez grounded out to third to end the inning. And it is just at the end of the Sam Haggerty score, they cut to two fans doing the like, no <laughs> face, right? They're like, yep. no. And it was really bad. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to, I'm sure they'll be done now. I'm sure that that will be the end of things because certainly that they're going to like hunker down now. They're going to like really gird their loins and they're going to get out of this inning and they're going to, you know, they're going to be down a little bit, but they're going to still be within striking distance. They're going to be able to rally back in the bottom of the inning. And then, and then, and then you watch, you watch like Stazzy try to catch the ball to tag out Dylan Moore at home plate. He fails to do that. The ball ricochets all the way to the backstop and everybody is safe and scoring except for the Angels. And then they cut to Phil Nevin, who is like pinching his neck. <laughs> like, I want to slowly strangle myself rather than keep watching this team play baseball. And I don't know if my explanation of what happened here was remotely comprehensible to anyone <laughs> but i would encourage you to just go back and watch because it is some of the sloppiest baseball i've ever seen the amount of falling down that happens <laughs> yep there is just like so much falling yeah. down there was more falling down when dylan moore scored you know there's like all of this everybody's just falling it's like they're on ice skates or it's a roller rink or something <laughs> We've you seen know? a lot of bad baseball this season. We talked about the Red Sox stretch of bad baseball, but it was over a period of games and days and weeks right. and not necessarily so compressed within a single inning. I mean, it was bad. Like, I was not watching live at that point. I had watched Otani, and then I was over into Better Call Saul series finale mode by that point, so I had to catch up later, but I will link to the GIF thread for everyone's enjoyment or yeah. sadness. I mean, what? Wasn't there also a point in that inning when Phil Nevin did not have a ready reliever ready? I yeah. don't know if it was for France or for Julio or at what point that was, but Loop had to face someone that he probably shouldn't have. That might have been true. There was a managerial miscue. Maybe the Angels are just a super fun site right now. He just <laughs> like really, he really threw a lot of pitches. It was very bad. You know, it was a bad. I really think that Julio hit a home run earlier in this game. I'm getting, maybe mm. I'm a truther. Yeah, that's, sounds like it. That's neither here nor there, but I don't know. <laughs> it seemed like it tucked behind the pole to me. I don't know. Maybe this is the sign that I really have reignited my fandom. That I'm like, don't you think that was a home run, though? Don't yeah, you look at it and know in your heart? Going to be he... a, a Mariners podcast down the stretch, I think probably. <laughs> but no, that's okay. Not exclusively. <laughs> not exclusively. But you know they are they are fun and they are winning and they, maybe it wasn't a home run. I don't know. Show it again in <laughs> slow mo. Now I'm just sitting here rewatching parts of this game. <laughs> I found it to be kind of frustrating early because. You know, again, it was not like an entirely crisp, super sparkling performance from either pitcher. It was not bad, but it was like, you know, this is not one where you walk away you're like, wow, you know, like when Castillo and Cole pitched against each other. I think that was a home run. I'm watching it again, Ben. I think that's <laughs> wow. a home run. I think that What a he, roller coaster this is. <laughs> I think he was robbed of number 19. I think that he should demand restitution. <laughs> yeah. If anyone's hitting home runs, it's probably Julio, you know, famously. Yeah, there's been a lot of perplexing action lately. There was a, a recent vomit incident on the field, which was... I heard that there was some vomiting, yeah. There really was. <laughs> Skybolt, Oakland A's center fielder, just 
voluminously vomited, yeah. just like me in the morning after a bunch of Brussels sprouts. He was out there. Just... Oh, just for me. You know, <laughs> hold on. I'm going to interrupt you. I'm sorry. That's very rude. I know that it's rude. I just want to say, like, easily the wildest stretch of time we have had on this podcast this year was the Invenue interview. But the second wildest was when you talked about the sprouts thing. Like, that is a, that's an all-timer, Ben. That's, I don't well, know, man. Anyway. I believe he had some sort of food poisoning, but he did not specify what the food was. Anyway, that was seemingly symbolic of how the A season is going. Then you had Javier Baez swinging at a pitch that bounced. Now, that part is not unusual. The unusual part is that he made contact this time and actually put the ball in play. So he flew out on, I believe, a slider that bounced. So that was a weird one. And maybe the most amusing of all was Tony La Russa appearing to take a fan's suggestion slash reminder to insert a pinch runner. So I don't know if you saw this video. Okay, well, I will link you to the video and we'll link everyone else to the video via the show page. But this was a, a video that was taken from someone behind home plate and it captured some other fans, one fan in particular, who was shouting very loudly at Tony La Russa to insert Adam Engel as a pinch runner in the eighth inning of the White Sox game on Monday. Now, we don't have a camera on La Russa, so we can't exactly see what his reaction is or if he is responding or if he's looking over, but they're shouting at Larusa. They're directing him to insert Adam Engel, and then he did. Now, <laughs> is this cause and effect? Is this correlation not causation? I don't know. Based on what we can tell, it certainly looks like causation because he had dallied in inserting the pinch runner, I believe, A whole at-bat maybe went by without inserting the pinch runner, and then he did on maybe the first pitch of the following at-bat after repeated and loud urging from this fan, which sort of fit into the narrative of Tony La Russa is asleep at the wheel, possibly literally at times, and it's doesn't reflect well on him that he did not make that move unless he had some other rationale. Sometimes maybe something changes and now it makes sense to insert a pinch runner, whereas before it did not. But it certainly looks suggestive that he is just taking suggestions from the crowd (laughs) that they are maybe reminding him to make moves that he was not completely up on. So choosing to believe that that's the case for the comedic value. Yeah, that would be the that would be the funnier option. But then don't you have like now they need to test it with additional with additional moves, right? There mm. have to we need some crowd verification that yeah. this has happened because see how open to suggestion right, he is. Right. How <laughs> how far along how far can we take this thing? Right. Yeah, this is like one step removed from Bill Vex's grandstand manager's night stunt, which he did like six days after Eddie Goodell's debut in 1951 with the St. Louis Browns, he had a night where the fans made the moves from the stands. So grandstand manager's night, they had like a thousand grandstand managers, quote unquote, in a special section behind the Browns dugout. And the Browns' actual manager, Zach Taylor, was just set up in a rocking chair in the next box over, just in his civilian clothes with a pipe in his mouth, just enjoying the night off. 
And then the fans wrote their choices on lineup cards, which they delivered to the Browns before the game. And then they tallied up the fan lineup preferences and they decided on the lineup. The Philadelphia A's manager, the opposing team's manager, Jimmy Dykes, was not amused. He said that Vec was making a farce of the game, which was often the case. I was going to say, hardly the first time he was accused of that, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, but in a very amusing way, generally. And he explained it to Sports Illustrated later. He said, the fan comes away from the ballpark with nothing more to show for it than what's in his mind, an ephemeral feeling of having been entertained. You've got to heighten and preserve that illusion. You have to give him more vivid pictures to carry away in his head. So here, they just had the grandstand managers calling the shots and they didn't do a bad job like they were calling for the Browns infield to play back and play for a double play. And they, I think, advised the catcher not to steal because he was slow and he didn't. And ultimately, the Browns won the game 5-3 to three with the grandstand manager's assistance. So maybe the White Sox should just outsource their managerial moves to the fans. Couldn't go much worse than it has been, probably. I mean, if nothing else, it would be kind of instructive, right? Because you would realize how hard it is. Like, I'm not, and I don't say that defending Tony LaRusse's decisions to date. Like, I think that we have, we have given him the business when he has deserved it this season, right? When he Mm -hmm. has made errors, we have been like, Betty, you're making some mistakes. But I do think that the the general task of managing is harder than people often give managers credit for. And a lot of that is just that there is an information asymmetry that exists between fans and the team, right? Where even a manager who is making bad decisions does have at his disposal a whole range of of information and bits of this and that that can help to inform the decisions that he's making and sometimes managers will like avoid a guy in the bullpen because they know something about him that we don't know and even though he's technically available he'd like to stay away from him if he can right and we don't always know all of that stuff so there's an information asymmetry that i think often allows fans to feel aggrieved and haughty now White Sox fans have good reason to feel aggrieved <laughs> this year because it hasn't been it hasn't been a smooth time, you know, like it hasn't been an easy going. But I think that it would perhaps illuminate for some people, like, oh yeah, this is actually hard, you know, this is a mm-hmm. tricky, a tricky thing. Plus, a lot of fans, you know, probably don't have a fluency with like all of the data that managers have at their disposal, not right. just information about availability and health, but like actual data and get, wrapping their arms around that might be tricky and they might make decisions that kind of fly in the face of what their ops group has told them they should do or what their broader team strategy is. So they might start issuing intentional walks when the pitcher's ahead in the count or something. I mean, yeah, (laughs) some just baseless move like that. Yeah, it could it could get out of hand. And maybe they'd come away being like, you know, that's one of those things. Maybe he's okay. (laughs) Like it might be. It might be fine. I would just like to say that I had forgotten that Carlos Santana took a giant fistful of sunflower seeds and just like shoved him in his mouth right before he stepped into the box. But I think Laz Diaz definitely goofed this up. And I, again, I don't know if Manny Acta was like trying to pull a fast one on him if there was shenanigans, but I just pulled this up while you were talking and it's like pitch one is definitely a ball. And then pitch two is the the pitch where Haggerty steals third and you can see Laz Diaz clearly making a strike sign, but then I think maybe got 
flummoxed by the steal, I got distracted. Because mm. he makes the same sign for pitch three, which is also a strike. And then pitch four is a ball. And then they're like, no, no, the count is 3-1. And then on the next uh, on the next pitch, Carlos Santana took his free base. Dylan Moore came in. And everything kind of fell apart from there. And it might have all started with them getting the count wrong. So if yeah. I were an Angels fan, I'd be mad at all sorts of people. <laughs> right. We're just getting distracted by sunflower seeds, potentially. But- it's just like the biggest, Ben, it's the <laughs> biggest wad of sunflower seeds you've ever seen in your whole life. Oof. And he's just like, rah. You know? Sounds Terry Francona-esque, but it just looks like sunflower seeds. Don't make it gross. <laughs> There's not other weird stuff in there. You know, look, we're not trying to give Tito a hard time, but that's disgusting. And I, I don't think that we should lay that on Carlos Santana. He's just there with some seeds. It's just the biggest water seeds you've ever seen in your whole life, but I'm going to take a screenshot for you so that you know what I'm Please talking do. about. Because you're like, how big a water could it be? And I'm here to tell you a pretty big one. <laughs> I'd definitely forget to put the pinch runner in if I were a major league manager, but I'm completely unqualified for that position. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I would decline to serve if asked, not that I would be asked. So, all right. A couple other things. I went on a little journey here looking at the Fancraft's war leaderboard because I noticed that Francisco Lindor is a top 10 player yeah. by war this yeah. season. Which had largely escaped my notice yeah. until fairly recently. Yeah, he's been really good. Yeah, in fact, in, until there was a, a viral bad tweet <laughs> about you Francisco just Lindor. Them. Yes, I'm, I'm not even going to give it attention, but I will say that. <laughs> The upside of the attention was that it it made me look up, hey, how good has Francisco Lindor been? Because this tweet was all about him being overpaid or his salary or something. Turns out he's been fantastic. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked about him this no, season. Has we his haven't. name been uttered that? on this program? I, I mean has. possibly at some point, but not that I recall. And he's been a like a five one player yeah. so far. He's been great. Now the rest of that journey is that I was looking up the other players involved in the Francisco Lindor trade, and they've all been pretty good. Yeah. And in fact, Andres Jimenez of yeah. the Guardians is a top 20 player by Fangraphs. Yeah, we have him at 14 as we are recording this on Tuesday afternoon. All right. So yeah. if you add up the wars at least entering Tuesday and you throw in Ahmed Rosario, who was going to the Guardians in that deal, and right. also Carlos Carrasco, who yeah. came back to the Mets, it's like Neck and neck, it's like yeah. 6.7, I think, Fangraphs were entering Tuesday for Lindor plus Carrasco versus 6.4 for Jimenez plus Rosario. And now, I guess, Carrasco has an oblique issue, and he's going to be out for a few weeks at least, it seems like. And so we're going to get like basically a photo finish, the two sides of this trade war-wise. Yeah. Now, if you wanted to bring years of team control or salary into it, as perhaps that tweet did, then I guess you would have to give an edge to Cleveland. But if we don't have to bring salary into it, because who cares what Steve Cohen is spending on baseball players, it's been remarkably even. I know that there were a couple minor leaguers involved in the trade as well, but at least for just this season, Lindor Carrasco, Jimenez Rosario, very even in terms of on-field value. Jimenez has been fantastic. Rosario has been a good contributor too. So probably too soon to say who won that trade, but 
I don't know that there is a clear winner right now. At least it has turned out, I guess, better than probably some people were thinking in the moment where that happened more or less on the heels of the Mookie Betts trade. And we're thinking, oh, no, another franchise cornerstone and icon gets traded by a team that won't just pay that player instead. And it's not as if they gave him away, at least in retrospect. Now, they've done pretty well on that deal and they've gotten good players back. And that's been a strength of that Cleveland front office. They've been good at developing pitchers. They've been good at winning trades, which highlights the fact that they didn't make any trades really at the deadline. So if you have a front office, just empower them to do what they do well, which is develop players and make trades and They don't really get much of a chance to spend big money for the most part, at least on free agents, et cetera. And yet they've managed to remain competitive anyway. And this deal is a good example of that. So if you're the Mets, you have to be pretty happy to have Francisco Lindor. And if you're the Guardians, you have to be feeling like, well, if we had to lose Francisco Lindor, we did pretty well for ourselves, seemingly. Yeah, I think that we can still have just a broad based philosophical and like methodological objection to the instinct to trade very good players rather than retain them and then pay them. Like, I think we can just like we can say that's that's not the kind of baseball we enjoy because it would be meaningful to people if Francisco Lindor were having this season in Cleveland, right? Like that would be that would be good too. People would like that because he'd be this guy that they'd had the whole time. But it does look less egregious in with the benefit of of hindsight in the last couple of years of performance. And and to me, like the money part of it is like whatever. It doesn't that doesn't matter. But it, just in terms of actual production on the field, like they I think properly identified something in Jimenez and seem to have maximized him pretty dramatically. And we'll have to see if he keeps hitting the ball as hard as he has because he hasn't really shown a capacity for that before. But yeah, it doesn't look as, it doesn't look like giving up stuff, like not giving up stuff, like giving it away, but like giving up. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. Which is sort of how it looked at the time where we were like, oh, so you're getting, like, I think that a lot of people's reaction, including mine at the time was, so just trade Ramirez now, right? Because like, what are you doing if you're getting rid of Lindor? If you're doing that, then just, you know, commit to the bit. And instead, they extended Ramirez and they've gotten a really terrific season out of Andres Jimenez, which I don't say like, gotten it out of him like he was like oh please help me but like you know he, he has been very productive for them and i think has been an exciting part of their season to date so i don't want to mm-hmm. take that away from him but also like you should just like um sometimes it's good to keep your franchise cornerstones is all so we can, yep. both things can be true at once right that right it wasn't it didn't end up being like a white flag kind of a trade and also you know we can just like it when guys stick around or given the opportunity to do that so Yeah, right. I mean, money may not matter for Steve Cohen. Cleveland ownership has decided that it matters, has chosen to operate in such a way that it matters. And so for them, I guess if they had signed Lindor, perhaps they would not have signed Ramirez, which is not to say that they couldn't have potentially done both. I just don't know that their track record suggests that they would have. So in that sense, if you could only keep one, if you're setting that up as your condition, rightly or wrongly, then I guess they've done decently in being able to keep one and get good value back for the other in terms of players who are producing at roughly an equivalent level to the ones they gave up at least this season. So I guess that's a bit of 
both sides winning or at least not losing as much as it initially looked like they might. Anyway, it just stood out to me because I had failed to recognize how good a couple of those players had been this year and then how close it is if you just add up the wars, which is maybe oversimplifying things with a player like Lindor, but still good players on both sides, it turns out. I have another update in the uh, Carlos Santana uh, at bat count controversy. (laughs) The sunflower seed explosion, and you were not exaggerating. I wasn't exaggerating, no, but I have a further update. And this Mm -hmm. is why I should search Twitter before I start talking to you about stuff. So this is from Jeff Fletcher last night. Mm-hmm. Umpire Laz Diaz just said he did in fact lose track of the count. I messed that one up. He also said if the Angels had pushed their objection further, they would have either checked with the other umpires to correct it or gone to the video to correct it. And then here's a funny thing. This is from Sam Blum. Phil Nevin on the ninth inning. It was awful. I think that was just a more general comment, not specific <laughs> to Laz Diaz. He also yeah. said he was aware of missed count call on the Carlos Santana at bat, but said ump Laz Diaz insisted that a pitch he'd call a strike was actually a called ball weird that's like Hmm. yeah can't you just go to look at the tape because then you would have been like oh the sam Haggerty, you know being fast that Mm -hmm. goofed this whole thing up i would i would wager because he does make it very clear anyway it was a weird game ben it was a weird game sure was So other things that have happened since we last recorded, Walker Bueller is injured even more than people hoped that he was, I guess. No one hoped that he was. They hoped that he wasn't. But he is. He's having Tommy John surgery. So he's going to be out for quite a while. Presumably we'll miss next season as well. So that sucks. That hurts the Dodgers short-term pitching depth and longer-term too. And I suppose his potential earnings and people who enjoy watching Walker Bueller. And it's always a bit of a bummer when a pitcher lingers for a while on the IL before having the surgery and then ultimately ends up missing more time than they theoretically could have if they had had surgery immediately, which is not to say that he was mishandled or mistreated or anything. Sometimes it does make sense to wait and try alternative treatments and occasionally that will pay off. And there are certain times when it doesn't really matter because of the calendar anyway. And so you're going to miss a certain amount of time regardless. But that's always frustrating or it was for me as a fan when it was like, not only did we lose this guy for a while, but Maybe if he had gone under the knife sooner, easy for fans to say, hey, go (laughs) get a new ligament in your elbow immediately. No, but it can be frustrating when you feel like, ah, not only has he gone for a while now, but if we had started the clock sooner on this thing, if somehow we had known what would happen and we had not waited for a few months, then he'd be a few months closer to returning. But, you know, he was less effective before he was hurt and then he was hurt in a more acute way. And I believe he said that what had ailed him in that start had not been ailing him previously, but his fastball was a lot less effective. And who knows, maybe there was some underlying weakness there that was taking a toll. So Dodgers pitching, I mean, they are often losing pitchers and somehow finding more. And Kershaw, of course, is hurt too, although Dustin May is about to be back and I believe is scheduled to start Saturday. So you lose one pitcher to TJ, you get one back. (laughs) So that's something. I mean, it makes the the Mitch White deal look a little funnier in retrospect, which, you know, I think your your mileage can vary on how much of a load he was necessarily going to carry, but, like, it is depth that they dealt away, and now they are reliant on, like, Kershaw coming back and being healthy, and 
Dustin May not getting hurt again, which I don't say, obviously hoping he stays healthy and not knowing anything like special or insidery, but it's just like this guy was broken recently. So the odds that he's going to be broken again are like non-zero at the very least. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the Dodgers wanted depth and how they have all this length in their lineup. And like now Max Muncy looks like he's getting it together again. And who will stop them? And it's like maybe themselves. Like maybe the answer will just be that they will take too many hits in the rotation and be compromised. Not in a, you know, I don't think they're in danger of losing that division. I don't think that they're even in danger of like getting played out of a first round bye. But I think that it does. It certainly complicates their postseason pitching pitch. Pitching picture. <laughs> I'm not tired. I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm drinking mm-hmm. a seltzer. I have I have water. Anyway, just <laughs> one of those days where my tongue is moving faster than my brain. But anyhow, you know, I think that they have a more complicated October picture to sort picture. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> podcast yips oh god um anyway it makes october more complicated and i don't want to make too much of dave roberts having been too cute in the past but it's like oh no where does the rubber meet the road on like the limitations of their pitching depth and like his at times strange like postseason proclivities when it comes to the pitching but maybe Maybe this is what he needed, Ben. Maybe he'll just mm-hmm. end up being constrained in what he can do and try to get goofy with because he just will only have a couple of guys who can throw. So yeah. maybe it was a strategy all along. Elsewhere in the NL West, the Fernando Tatis suspension news broke after we recorded last right. week in time for me to mention it in the outro and read the relevant statements and such and some of the early parsing of at least the first explanation for how this supposedly contaminated sample occurred. Do you have any thoughts about either the suspension itself or I guess about the conversation about the explanations for the suspension? I just... I mostly am just disappointed, you know, like it's just a bummer. I don't feel the need to like moralize on it more than has already happened. Like this was, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that we have a couple of really big examples of his judgment just not being very good in ways that affect his ability to be on the field. And that's a real shame because he's a super talented guy. He's a really exciting player. I think everyone was looking forward to, you know, the like full strength Padres and what they might be able to do in the postseason with, you know, the addition of Soto and then and they haven't even gotten Tatis back yet. And it's like, right, well, yeah. you know, I don't know him, right? I don't know how like convincing of an explanation that defense is that he offered, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, part of When you're a player of that caliber, when you're as important to the ongoing organizational plans of a team as Tatis is, I think that you want to approach moments where you might, you know, kind of run afoul either of, you know, a motorcycle or weird stuff that might be in a medication that you don't understand, but just like a good amount of trepidation. And there are so many resources available to these guys, right? It's not like... Mm -hmm. He couldn't have just gone to the team and been like, I think I have ringworm. 
You know, what do I do for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way, like if you take the explanation as legitimate, then that makes him look bad in a different way. I mean, if he's cheating, then obviously he's not going to go to the team and announce that and ask them what to do. If he's not cheating and it was accidental, then it still should have been avoidable. So either way, it's not great. And even if he had some perfect airtight excuse where you somehow couldn't really blame him and he just ran afoul of the rules and got a bad batch of something or other and it wasn't his fault. Even if that were the case and he were suspended for 80 games, that would still suck. (laughs) So it's bad either way, no matter what the actual explanation is. Whether you actually buy his explanation, I guess that might have some bearing on his perception and his reputation and whether people hold this against him long term or not. So not saying it's irrelevant. And certainly I think some of the explanations, they weren't the most convincing that I've ever heard (laughs) and seemed somewhat flimsy and some respects, although you just never really know. But it wasn't going to be good news regardless of what his explanation was or whether he had one at all or even if it was a perfect one. If the explanation at the end or the result at the end is that we get no Fernando Tetis for quite a long time, that's not great. And, you know, I don't know if it's as catastrophic as what was his his father, Fernando Tatis Sr., said it was a mistake that could have been handled differently. Destroy the image of a player for such a small thing for a situation like this. It is a catastrophe, not just for Tatis Jr., but for all baseball. There's millions of fans that will stop watching baseball which sounds like a bit of an overbid, maybe. Fernando Tatis quite popular and compelling, both domestically and internationally. I don't know that he has the power to make or break millions of fans necessarily. But yeah, it's just not great news. It's disappointing on multiple levels. Yeah, and, you know, Tatis is still a young guy. I think, you know, he is... He's like old enough to have better judgment than this. But like I mentioned him being young because he has a lot of playing career left, right? And so I think trying to project what the trajectory of his reputation is going to be is like kind of a fool's errand because I don't know, like we'll have to see how he plays when he does come back. We'll have to see like, is this the thing that sort of, you know, arrests a bad chain of events for him? And, you know, he's like really committed and doing all the right stuff like we don't know like there's mm-hmm. a there are a lot of directions that his career could take and not all of them are bad so mm-hmm. i don't feel the need to like bury the guy i think he's being appropriately punished it sounds like his teammates are irritated and disappointed it sounds like the front office is similarly annoyed and so he has some work to do to kind of repair those internal relationships which are gonna be probably more important for him going forward than like anything that we're gonna say on this dumb podcast you know Mm -hmm. but it's a bummer like you want to be able to see the best players at the height of their powers and we had this like looming exciting you know tatis on the horizon and now we're gonna you know you have to to wait a while longer to see him and that's just too bad so i hope that he does learn from this and makes better choices and then we get to enjoy him for a long time to come and we look back like 10 years from now and we're like you remember that weird year fernando had what a weird thing that right. was so like that's the thing i hope that we get to say a decade from now but it will be interesting to see if he is able to course correct and certainly what the reception will be f- for him from his teammates and the organization going forward because people sounded pretty annoyed. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> like, yeah, they sounded, in a public way. Yeah. They sounded 
pretty unreservedly annoyed. And I would be too if I were the Padres and, you know, you've like committed to this guy and he's so talented and you've made, you know, I don't know when the organization found out about the looming suspension. So I don't, and I don't think we've heard anything about how that was sequenced relative to the Soto trade. I think that those things happened independent from one another as far as we know, right? Right. Preller said he didn't know before that day. So, like, you know, I think that I think that AJ probably like coveted Juan Soto mm-hmm. and probably would have done whatever he could to like get him. But they did make plans sort of with a, a hope and understanding that Tatis would be available for a postseason run this year and a complete and hopefully healthy season next year. And this does compromise, you know, big stretches of that time. So I hope that like it is uh, something that we don't have to keep talking about because he just has like a normal year next year. He comes back from the suspension. He plays, he plays well, he does his thing and we all get to move on. But Mm -hmm. yeah. And I hope I did not get a fungus from the haircut that I had on Sunday. (laughs) Apparently that can happen. So it's said the most important takeaway from this situation is that the planned September 7th Fernando Tatis Jr. bobblehead giveaway has been changed to a Juan Soto City Connect jersey giveaway. So make your plans accordingly. Maybe there were millions of fans of Fernando Tatis Jr. bobbleheads. So last little bit of news was that the Rangers fired their manager, yeah, <laughs> Chris Woodward. Just, and, and, and we will just remind everyone, like, Tony LaRusso still has a job. <laughs> yes, he definitely does. Yeah, this uh, has been a big year for managers being fired midseason. Rangers are the latest one. I don't have a ton to say about this except for the fact that I'm interested in the idea that one reason why he was let go potentially is that the Rangers have this historically awful record in one-run games, which we've talked about before this season. I don't know how closely tied that was to his being let go, but he was let go in part because they didn't live up to the expectations that they set for themselves. And of course, they made some big free agent acquisitions and they were hoping to be competitive this season and they are not quite. And a lot of that has to do with their record in one-run games, because if you look at their run differential or other metrics, I mean, they're negative one in run differential right now, which is not great, but is not as bad as you would expect based on their 52 and 63 record as we speak. So they're like five wins below where they should be according to base runs and other methods. And They have what would be the second worst one-run winning percentage really since 1901. I just saw in the Baseball Reference newsletter on Tuesday. Now, funnily enough, they won a one-run game on Monday after Woodward was let go. So there you go. They had Tony Beasley interim manager at the helm, and they won a 2-1 game. So how about that? But they're now 7-24 in games decided by one run that's a 226 winning percentage the only one worse 1935 boston 7 and 31 184 winning percentage there is this popular perception that maybe that has something to do with managers like 
even though we know that record in one-run games is very dependent on luck and it fluctuates a lot from season to season or even within a single season, there is a lingering idea that maybe this is an area where managers can be assessed or similarly, maybe if you beat your Pythagorean record, your expected record based on how many runs you've scored and allowed, maybe that would be an area where the manager's impact could become clear. I'm sort of skeptical of that theory in general. And I emailed Chris Jaffe about this, who wrote a lot for the Hardball Times and has written a ton about managers and wrote a whole book about managers. And I asked him whether he buys into that. And he said, I'm not sure I put much or any stock, especially iffy about a one-year sample size. It, It could maybe mean that someone is bad at handling their bullpen Then again, maybe it means that you don't have a good bullpen or maybe it means that your hitters or your pitchers just haven't been performing at the right time. So it's a clutch issue. But basically, he says, I don't put much stock in one run games besides wondering if it says something about bullpen use. So I don't know why Woodward was let go exactly. Maybe it's just general disappointment in where the Rangers are, but it seems like their historically bad record in one-run games is a big reason of why their record has disappointed. Otherwise, they would not be totally out of contention in theory. So in that sense, maybe he got a bit of a raw deal. I certainly have not been watching the Rangers on a daily basis. So if he has been making horrible tactical decisions in close games that have led to the Rangers losing some of those games, then I could see why that would lead to some frustration. I'm probably the low man on managers making a big difference just in general, except for some isolated cases, although the post-Girardi Phillies might make a, a decent case for that. But Then again, how have the Angels done since they fired Joe Madden? Weren't we just talking about them earlier in this episode? It (laughs) was awful. The ship is too tight right now. And I guess the post-Montoyo Jays have more or less the same record, maybe a tiny bit better than they were with him. So mixed bag there when it comes to the in-season results. I don't know. If I had paid closer attention to the Rangers and been watching them day in and day out, I would have a stronger opinion probably on Chris Woodward. But haven't seen him be the subject of any videos where fans reminded him to put a pinch runner in. (laughs) Maybe I just haven't (laughs) noticed. (laughs) It it is an interesting thing because you do kind of wonder, and I don't know that we'll ever have a satisfactory answer to this, but like, is the one run game thing kind of an excuse? Was there a miscalibration of expectations internally after the busy and spendy offseason that they had. Right. Because externally, it wasn't like we all bought the Rangers as an immediate contender, right? I mean, maybe they saw themselves that way, but... Right. But, like, we didn't think of them that way. But part of our basis for that understanding was, like, looking at the additions that they had made, looking at how their roster projected, and then being like, well, you know, it's definitely better. And I think that we had... We were inclined to, or I don't remember how you felt about it actually, Ben, but I I remember feeling like, look, you know, there's only one Corey Seager. And so if Corey Seager is your guy and you're signing him to a long contract, you get him this year, even if you're paying him in a year where you don't have an expectation that you're going to really contend because like he's not going to be on the market next year. So if you want him, this is your chance to get him. And so sometimes you're just going to pay a premium up front, even though your your years of contention might be a year from now or two years from now, right? So I thought that the signings were fine. Like I was excited for them being like, no, we're going to, you know, we have this big new 
Costco that we play baseball in and we want to get people excited about this team and we like these guys. So we're going to, you know, we're going to commit to them. But if you do that, I think it is hard to properly message to a fan base that might not like go to the fan graphs projections every day and say, but we're probably not going to win. <laughs> right. Like that is a weird communication issue to have to navigate. And I can understand how, especially when you have these, one run losses that feel so bad, right? Because you could win them, but you don't, right? They feel like you should be winning, but then you don't end up winning them. Like, mm-hmm. I, I get being like, look, we just got to move on from this. And again, there might be stuff that we don't know because there always is with managers. So it could yep. be that, like, they just were philosophically in a different spot. You know, they could be that they assessed his performance in those close games and thought he's not pulling the right levers here. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let me end with this. I don't know if I even want to call it a stat blast. I guess we could technically call it a stat blast. We can play the song. Stat Blast, as always, sponsored by the Baseball Reference StatHead tool. Go to StatHead.com, use our coupon code WILD20, get yourself a $20 discount on an $80 one-year subscription for the Baseball tool or for any of the single-sport tools, although they also have multi-sport options. We love StatHead. You know we do. So we got a question about that Drew Rasmussen start that he made for the Rays. Yeah. He's having a nice year. I know Ben Clemens just wrote about him and his new and improved cutter. And he looked like he was going to go for a complete game. Yes, he did. did. Go for it, (laughs) which would be quite rare for a Rays pitcher. And he didn't quite make it. He had a very low pitch count. He started the ninth, but then he gave up a double and a ground out. And then there was a wild pitch and a run scored. And then there was a strikeout. And then he was replaced for the end of that inning. But he had a perfect game through eight. I'm kind of burying the lead here, right? So he was going for a perfect game. And he didn't get it, but we got a question here. It was really a question about a question, but Kevin, Patreon supporter, said on August 14th, Ethan Ellis started a question on the Effectively Wild Facebook group asking which is more impressive, a perfect eight innings or a no-hitter, which brings up the question, what has happened more often? Mm. So even though he did not finish off the perfect game, he did start with eight perfect innings. So is that in itself maybe more impressive than a no-hitter that is in nine innings. And I will leave that question to you to ponder, but I will give you the data. And this is from Frequent Stat Blast consultant Ryan Nelson. So since 1916, there have been 48, and this may have been before Rasmussen starts, perfect eights, Ryan was calling them. So 48 games where the starter pitched eight perfect innings to start out, including the 19 perfect games over that time. Over that same period, there have been 223 single pitcher, nine inning, no hitters. So a perfect eight is much rarer than a nine inning, no hitter. 
And I wondered, well, how far down do you have to go until it's roughly the same Mm. rate, right? So what number of perfect innings to start a game is equivalent, if not in difficulty, at least in frequency, to a nine-inning no-hitter? And it turns out you have to lower the bar quite a bit, actually, to make it equivalent. So seven perfect innings to start. That has happened only 137 times, including the 19 actual perfectos. Now, six perfect innings is 427 times, so that is more than the number of nine-inning no-hitters. So basically, the nine-inning no-hitter is about as common as between a six and a third and six and two-thirds perfect inning start to an outing. So there have been 198 times when a pitcher started with six and two-thirds perfect innings, which is about as close as we can get without coming up with uh, six and a half innings or something like that, which would lead to probably some pedantic emails. So that's basically the exchange rate there. You have roughly as many six and two thirds perfect inning starts as you do nine inning no hitters that are actually finished off. So I leave that to you and the listeners to decide if that is the same, like if actually finishing it off is so much more impressive for a nine-inning no-hitter that that makes up for not finishing off what starts as a perfect game but isn't finished as one. But those are the numbers for you. So basically, it's just a lot harder to be perfect than it is to not allow any hits, which is probably not news, but maybe it's somewhat surprising just the magnitude of the difference. Yeah, it strikes me as surprising. I really thought he was going to do it, Ben. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people tweeted at me that this means the Mariners aren't going to the postseason because I confessed to my one bit of like really intense superstition. So I don't know. I feel nervous now. The curse of Felix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But see, I got to get over it because I can't sit here and say the curse of Felix. What does that mean? I love Felix, silly (laughs) Meg. Yeah. Why would Felix curse the Mariners? I mean, I know. His tenure maybe didn't end in the happiest possible way, but I'm sure he wishes no ill on that franchise. I'm sure he wouldn't want to continue to deprive Mariners fans of right. playoff appearances just because he was deprived of them. Yeah, I would be surprised. He seems mm-hmm. like he wouldn't be vindictive like that. So. Right. And the other thing in that genre, I don't know whether you saw the fun fact on Friday, I believe it was, from Tim Britton, who covers the Mets for The Athletic. And by the way, the Mets just called up one of their top prospects. They did. Yeah. We need to petition to change the pronunciation of the name, I think, because Brett Beatty, spelled B-A-T-Y, really, if you are a position-playing You prospect, want it to be Batty? Yeah, come on. I no, mean, but then Batty I know is... B-A-T-T-Y is something else, and maybe you wouldn't want that to be your pronunciation, but... No, can we go with batty if you're a bat player? If you're a bat, if you're a batman, yes, you are the batman. <laughs> yeah. But but batty can mean like crazy, like that right, has right, a I know. yeah, yeah. But, but if you were a baseball player, <laughs> that doesn't mean that. I'm just saying that's yeah. my one note for Brett Beatty. Yeah, you should. I mean, I think that you should call his mom. <laughs> yeah, and be like, probably the first person who has ever suggested. Yeah, this excuse him, you. Sure. But Tim Breton, who covers the Mets for the Athletic, he tweeted, "Bryson Stott is the first player to ever reach base four times in the same game against Max Scherzer," and that tweet blew up because it's a great fun fact because you read it. And is you that true? It is true, actually. Yeah. So 
Ryan Nelson fact-checked this. Not only is it true that Bryson Stott is the first player to ever reach base four times in the same game, it's true even if you include fielder's choice and errors. It doesn't even have to be reaching base in an OBP-boosting way. Just getting on base. It just had not happened. So that's a great fun fact because Max Scherzer, he's had a Hall of Fame career already. He's been around for a really long time. You would think at some point he must have been bound to allow someone on base four times in a single game. The man's 38 years old. Right. But it's true. Now, here's the thing. I I think like all fun facts, as Sam used to say, this fun fact lies a little bit in kind of an interesting way. So Max Scherzer has thrown 2,639 and a third innings. Here's the thing, though. He has only faced the same batter in one game 253 times after that start, which is not a lot of times because he is extremely effective on a per-inning basis, but he doesn't tend to go that deep into games. I mean, over the course of his career, he's averaging less than six innings a start. I mean, he's a pitcher in this era when pitchers don't go that deep into games. And maybe, I don't know, he perhaps goes a little less deep into games than you would expect just based on how great he is on a per inning basis. So he's only faced the same guy in the same game 253 times. And he's obviously a very good pitcher who has allowed a 278 career on base percentage to all of the hitters he's faced. Now, Ryan was able to confirm that this is the longest streak of innings ever to start a career without a pitcher having allowed four on base events to the same person in the same game. So that is special. It is notable and historical and unprecedented. And now he also found. After Scherzer, the next most innings of of anyone who has not or did not allow someone to get on base four times the same game, Anibal Sanchez Mm. at 1973 and a third innings, almost 700 fewer than Scherzer, and then Kirk Reeder, who had 1918 innings and retired many years ago. So it is notable, but also... He just doesn't allow that many opportunities for this to be accomplished because he doesn't go that deep into games. And so if you do some just sort of simplistic probability as Ryan did and you just kind of run the numbers based on the OBP he's allowed in general, which is maybe oversimplifying things. Maybe you can't assume independence like that. You're facing some hitters a bunch of times in the game who are more likely to get on base than the average. Sure. And also some who are less. And there's the times through the order penalty right. and all of that, of which Scherzer has a somewhat smaller than is typical times through the order penalty. So that may be part of this too. But basically, if you just run those very simplistic probabilities, you would expect only 1.5 actual (laughs) hitters to have done this. So it's kind of like right in line with what should have happened. Yeah. If you use 290 instead of 278 to account for errors and fielder's choices, then you'd expect 1.7 instead of 1.5. So it's not actually that weird. Like the weird thing is that he has only faced batters a fourth time 253 times. So that's actually the weird part. And you don't realize that when you see the stat initially. I'm not finding fault with the fun fact. I'm just sort of over-explaining the fun fact, I guess. But that's the thing. It's like if Bryson Stott had been the second player to do this against Scherzer, then maybe that would have been just as unlikely as no one having done it to this point in his career. So that's the weird thing. And 
if you look at like other pitchers, even in this era, like they have allowed many more batters the opportunity to do this. Like Justin Verlander, let's say, has seen a batter four plus times in a game, 565 times. Roy Halladay, 945 times. Tim Hudson, 729 times. So out of all pitchers in the history of baseball with 2,500 or more innings, no one has faced players four times in a game less often than Max Scherzer. So like maybe that's the fun fact. That's not nearly as fun actually, but (laughs) that's sort of the explanation. And if you look at the pitchers who are like closest to Max Scherzer in career innings and number of times that they have faced hitters four plus times in the same game, like... Kyle Loesch is right there, for instance. And Kyle Loesch, not nearly as good a pitcher as Max Scherzer. What? Yeah, breaking (laughs) news here. But he's only allowed three hitters to do it in in his whole career. He allowed only three, Maglior, Donez, Lance Berkman, Carlos Beltran, even though he was way worse than Max Scherzer. Or Zach Greinke, who is also very good but has pitched more innings than Max Scherzer. Four hitters have done it against him. Willie Harris, Kurt Suzuki, Mark DeRosa, Buster Posey. So basically, this is one of those genres of fun fact where it makes you say, wow, it accomplishes its objective. It's great. It deserved to get retweeted a whole bunch. But the more I looked into this, the more I was like, actually, that's kind of what you would expect. It's just that Max Scherzer kind of has an atypical career by historical standards. Buzzkill, man. Yeah, maybe so. So sorry if I harshed anyone's vibe there, but that's sort of the explanation. (laughs) I mean, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we will lead into our guest, and this will be a good lead-in, I think, because it's time for the Pass Blast. This is 1890, so Pass Blast from 1890 and from Richard Hirschberger, Sabre researcher, historian, author of Strike 4, The Evolution of Baseball. This fits the theme really well, and this was something I did not know. This Pass Blast is about a woman named Ella Black, who was the first woman baseball reporter, Hmm. also a trailblazer. So... Ella Black of Pittsburgh in early 1890 began sending correspondence about baseball to Pittsburgh newspapers. That March, she moved up to The Sporting Life, the most important national sporting paper of the day. The Sporting Life seems to have initially printed her letter as a novelty, but she kept sending in interesting and insightful material, and eventually the paper sent her press credentials. She did not simply try to copy what her male colleagues were doing. She approached the topic from a different perspective, sometimes distinctly feminine and sometimes just looking at it from a different direction. Here's an excerpt from her Sporting Life column of August 9th. This was the year of the Players League, set up as a rival to the National League. This was a financial fight, making league finances a subject of general interest. Both leagues were losing money, but both also put out disinformation, presenting a rosy picture. Ella Black took a creative approach to analyzing their financial condition. Quote, although there is no more earnest adherent of the Players League than myself at this time, I am compelled to admit that it looks as if they, as well as the National League clubs, were becoming a great deal more careful in regard to their expenses than the latter body was one year ago. At that time, so far as this city was concerned, there was nothing too good for the clubs, and they nearly all stopped at the Hotel Anderson. This year, that house has all the guests it can accommodate and does not care whether it gets any ball clubs or not. The result is that although when the season opened, the clubs of the Players League stopped at the Hotel Anderson and were willing to pay $4 a day for the style and comfort they could have at that resort. But there's been a very great change in all this of late. The change I speak of is not confined to the Players League clubs, but the National League members are getting a dose of it as well. I regard the hotels at which the club's top 
as a sort of thermometer by which the observant public can tell something of the financial condition of the different bodies. So she was doing hotel analysis, just judging their finances by their accommodations. She continued, the high-toned, expensive $4 per day hotel was only early in the season at a time when all the players and others connected with the club still clung to the idea that each and every team was going to make an enormous profit this season. Now their dream of dollars is over and has been dispelled very decidedly. They are no longer able to stand quarters that will not make a special rate or anything of that sort. After leaving the Anderson, the clubs went to the 7th Avenue Hotel and the Monongahela House because at both places they were given a special rate that made it an object for them to stop at either house. Now of late, both of these houses have been left in the shade and the St. Charles has sheltered the teams that visit the city. This is because the regular rate of the house is $2 per day and the special rate that is given to clubs is much smaller. Now, to my way of thinking, this changing of hotels and gradual descent from 4 to $2 per day for the team's board per man shows very plainly they have not any of them got any money to waste. <laughs> it is not one side that is economizing any more than another, but both the major leagues are trying to do it. Ballplayers, like all other men, love their appetites and want plenty of good first-class food with which to satisfy it, and it is on this account that I am led to believe that the change I referred to has been made because the clubs could not stand it any longer to pay the expensive rates required at the first-name houses. Certainly it is being done, and to save money can be the only reason for it. I wonder whether Bob Nutting is paying the $4 a day now or not, whether part of Nutting is staying at the cheaper hotels on the road, but... Richard writes, many found it hard to believe that it actually was a woman writing these columns. In the same issue, the regular Pittsburgh correspondent relates how Billy Hoy, the center fielder for the Players League Buffalo Club, asked if Ella Black really was a woman. Upon being assured about her sex, he replied, she seems well posted on baseball for a woman. Thanks, Billy Hoy. When she tried to use her press credential to get into a game in Brooklyn, the ticket taker was incredulous. She eventually just paid for a ticket rather than endure the hassle. Unfortunately, her baseball writing career lasted just the one season. She dropped out of view, and nothing later is known about her. And Richard sends me to an article that was written at Atlas Obscura. I will link to that too. But interesting. Uh, One season overlooked, underknown career. I was not aware of. Yeah, me either. Yeah. I wonder what happened to her. Yeah. Well, we will take a quick break now, and we'll be back with Justine Siegel to talk about being a baseball coordinator for the show, A League of Their Own, as well as the movie, A League of Their Own, and her work with Baseball for All and women in baseball in general. And we do talk about some of the baseball action in the series, and and we discussed that last time when we gave our general review of the show. And I think our one quibble with the baseball action, which is generally quite good, was some of the digital effects, which I don't think we can lay the blame for that at the door of Justine. I doubt she is doing the CGI herself, but she does explain in a way why it looks like that. So that might be a bit enlightening. But again, for the most part, I think not only did we enjoy the series, but also enjoyed the baseball action. So let's talk to her about it in just a moment. In the field of opportunity, it's plowing time again. There ain't no way of telling where these seeds will rise or win. I'll just wait around till springtime, and then I'll find a friend in the field of opportunity. 
Well, we are joined now by Dr. Justine Siegel, the founder of Baseball for All, a trailblazing baseball coach at many levels and in a lot of leagues, and most recently, the baseball coordinator for a new league, a league of their own on Amazon Prime. Dr. Siegel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So if I'm Googling and doing my arithmetic right, you must have been about 11 or 12 when A League of Their Own, the documentary, came out, and maybe 16 or 17 when the movie came out. So were these formative or favorite movies of yours, either at the time or later on? Yeah, I mean, I didn't see the documentary when I was a kid, but definitely everybody saw the movie. And it was seeing A League of Their Own with Penny Marshall's brilliance. It just made me feel a little less alone about my my love for baseball, you know, as as to knowing that women had played the game before me because like I was the first one in my high school, the first one in Ohio, you know, to play baseball. So it just felt like, oh, there's other people who love the game like me who have played. Yeah. And we do want to talk a little bit about your background and your career, but I wonder how this gig with the reboot with the TV show came about. Had you had experience as a baseball coordinator working in media before, or how did you get connected with this project? No, I've never done TV before. My friend River Butcher offered me the opportunity to speak to the writers as they wanted to talk to someone who, you know, Mm. sort of experienced life in baseball as a woman. And so I did, and they thought, oh, I should train the actors. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of went from there. Liz Coe was a, really helping me out getting there, one of the producers. So I, I did the pilot with another baseball coordinator, and then when it got picked up, I became the head baseball coordinator. And what does it mean to do that? How are you putting these actors through their paces? And what were the the different levels of sort of baseball or perhaps softball experience that they were bringing to the table? Yeah, sure. So the baseball coordinator does a lot of things. And I'm not sure, you know, I've worked on one other show since. And so it varies just a little bit, but mainly I train the actors. So that could be a training camp where I bring in other coaches. Alina Park was a, my assistant baseball coordinator as well. And so we train them. And then you also have to like, during the show, you know, you stand by the director in case the director has questions, or if you kind of see the actor doing something that she could do better, you know, jumping in. So it was really everything from looking at the script to being on the field and, and trying to get the best shot possible and just being of help to the director in any way you can. And, you know, there's a lot about baseball now and baseball as you've played it that is similar to the time frame when the series is shot. But what research did you do? Were there any sort of period-specific adjustments that you found yourself needing to make as you were training them so that it would not only look like baseball, but look like baseball at this time? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So a good example would be the catcher with Carson, who is played by Abby Jenkinson. Uh, when she's catching, she actually has her mitt, her hand, her right hand near the mitt, not behind it, not behind her back, but near mm. the mitt. And the reason is, is because it's really hard to catch <laughs> with those catcher's mitts. And so back then it was pretty common to kind of have your hand out and, and just be ready for anything mm. and to catch it. How do you think the original movie holds up from a, a baseball level now that maybe you've gotten back and watched it with a, a critical baseball coordinator's eye? Because 
there's a wide range in many baseball movies, right, where some actors look very convincing and maybe have some athletic background and sometimes not so much. And that's fine if they're bringing other things to the project and if the movie is great in other ways, then that's not necessarily a deal breaker. But it seems like the original League of Their Own, I think, holds up fairly well in that respect. So I don't know who the baseball coordinator for <laughs> that project was or, or whether you talked to them or whether there was one. But I wonder whether you've gone back and looked at it now that you've worked in this capacity. Yeah. What was interesting about the original, I mean, the movie, it's not even like a comparison. The show is really um, builds off the movie, but it's not a replica. Right. Is that they used real baseballs. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, we used real balls sometimes, but a lot of times we didn't. And so in the movie, the actors had to really learn baseball and they really needed to cast people who they thought could do the job. And for me, a lot of that, what it means to do the job is like, can you get your arm in position? You know, mm. there's so much just like an arm arc. Can you, can you get it so you look like an athlete? And so I think that baseball in many ways looks very, very real. Like in the movie, like I'm super impressed with it. And then I love that in our TV show, you know, we do a little bit more, you know, we're a little bit more creative with some of the baseball spots. And of course there are some baseball moments, you know, where that play homage, to the movie, you know, like with uh, Shantae Adams, the character Max, just picking up the ball like Gina Davis, catching the ball with uh, one hand. So that's those type of things. But um, I think there's talent on both ends. But if there was a game, game to game, if you played one another, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, the movie might get them. The movie might have them with Lori Petty <laughs> pitching from the mound. I'm not sure. It would be a good one. <laughs> when you say that you weren't always using a real ball, do you mean it was like shadow ball, like the Negro Leagues team that is shown or the, the barnstorming team that's in the show? Or do you mean it's just a different kind of ball that was standing in for a baseball in some scenes? No, so it's a, uh, they used the uh, VFX at right. the end. So sometimes it's actually a bit harder to shoot when you're not throwing the ball. And I could I could point out examples of, of that in the show, but I'm not going to <laughs> I'm sure other people will. So you mean it was like pantomime, like just going through the motions and then the ball would be added later? Yeah, you throw through the motion or like the hitter hitting and you don't actually have a ball coming at the hitter. Mm -hmm. It's just too complicated with all the cameras around. Mm -hmm. But there's plenty of times where the ball was in play, where that ball in the outfield that they're shagging is real and then they're throwing into the cut, you know. So there's plenty of times there there is the ball and then there's other times when there isn't. So they used VFX to make some of it look more realistic, but I would imagine that there were times when what was being asked of the actors was either beyond their capability or perhaps unsafe. Were there times when you had baseball stand-ins on set? And what was their experience like? We had body doubles, but never for safety. Well, I guess that's not true. We had stunts. So we had body doubles and we had stunts, which are really two different things. So like Shantae Adams has a body double that one of them came from the baseball for all program and another one had played high school baseball who I was so excited to find uh, that these, these two women looked enough alike to do the job and do it really well. And then other times when there's slides, sure. That's someone from stunts, but not, you know, not always like the actors, you know, had a good base coming in some more than others, uh, whether that was, um, you know, softball, middle school softball, you know, but it was, it was all really great. Yeah, I was going to ask about that without uh, ragging on anyone's baseball skills specifically, but you've coached people at 
all levels from young people to the major leagues. So I'm sure you've seen (laughs) everything. But was there anyone who was bringing a special baseball expertise or were most of the actors starting from sort of the same level? And if there were some people who were basically just new to the sport, how do you give them a crash course (laughs) in looking like a baseball player in whatever time you had available? Yeah. And I think, you know, that comes down to sort of like, how well can you communicate the movements of baseball and what they need for the scene? You know, so I don't need to teach someone how to like, you know, hit the corner (laughs) with a (laughs) curveball or something like, but I do have to help get them into position so we can at least film it. But Kelly McCormick, who was the shortstop for the Peaches, she actually played in a women's league up in Canada. (laughs) Melanie Field played softball in the Broadway league. And both Tarsi Cardin and Abby Jacobson both had some softball background. So, you know, you kind of build off of what they know. And um, other times, if they didn't know something, for me, it's like, how do you relate the information to what they do know? And that's sort of the quickest way to learn. And for for Shante Adams, it was, you know, she called it choreography. (laughs) (laughs) The pitching motion I'd never thought of as choreography. But for her, she was able to, you know, use her own experience in dancing and then think about it, the steps in pitching. And Mm. so as the baseball coordinator, just as a coach, you know, grabbing what they do know, whether that's tennis, golf, what do they know about balance and transferring of your body, you know, front, back and so on and working with it. And was it sort of a team building or or team spirit building exercise just in the same way that the Peaches in the show bond over practice and playing baseball together? Did the cast kind of do the same? I mean, I'd imagine that with some people, they just thought, oh, this is a cool show and a great role. And I guess I'll just have to you know, grin and bear it when it comes to the baseball. But did a lot of people actually embrace it and end up enjoying that aspect of the role? Oh, all of the actors wanted to look as good as they could. And the whole show is very focused on bringing honor to the original league, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. So, you know, being good, you know, they wanted to pick up everything they could. We did a two-week training camp before the pilot, two-week training camp before we shot the season. And even before the pilot, I was over, was it the pilot? No, it was the second thing. We were shooting... I was already practicing with some of them like three times a week. Mm. So it was through the baseball, I think, that the bonding really started. And they could see within one another how each was improving. And that was, you know, really exciting, you know, when when someone makes a big play, because we did play, you know, we did, uh, part of our practice was to play the game so they could see where the ball goes, what feels like, how to lead off. You know, you're just super excited when, when someone gets it right. You know, and the throw is in and you get them out at home and it's, you know, it's, it is like any other win that you would have, whether it's, you know, professional or or little kids. It's just about achievement and helping someone with their goals. I know that there were a number of women from the original real life league who were involved with the series in a variety of capacities. And I wonder if you had the opportunity to talk with any of them about their own baseball journeys and what a league of their own, but mostly the actual league had meant to them. Yes, yeah, so you'll see two women in the TV show in episode one, Shirley Berkovich and Maybell Blair. Shirley passed, I don't know, maybe six months ago, four months ago, and, and Maybell has become a superstar <laughs> on the media everywhere. She, yeah. <laughs> she, she uh, has come out at age 95 during one of the premiere Q&As. <laughs> you know, I, I've had the good fortune of just sort of knowing uh, the women from the league over the years and hearing their stories and, and talking to them and 
and having them actually come out to our tournaments uh, with baseball for all so that our girls who are 10 years old can, you know, meet an 85 year old who can still throw a ball. <laughs> and some of the barriers and obstacles that the members of the Peaches encounter in this series, I mean, this is taking place 80 years ago, but how analogous are they to what girls and women continue to deal with in baseball today or that you dealt with growing up? I think, you know, it's definitely a different time period. And, you know, the movie shows the different time. And of course, it's it's a war. And, and so the, the roles of women and then in the TV show, you know, we really build off of that. And what does it mean to make a living? You know, when your husband goes off to war, what does it mean to be gay? What does it mean to question your sexuality? And, and what does it mean to be a black woman trying to play baseball in 1943? And so I think those are some really huge <laughs> you know, huge issues uh, that had to be overcome. I think in today's world, like, for example, I had a parent reach out to me and say the high school's not letting his daughter play baseball. So we then have at least Title IX on our side and can go and I can look at the rule book and see, is there actually a rule or is this just someone's opinion? Mm-hmm. And um, and then at times we reference Title IX and we can get her playing. And then other times we can't. You know, it's a private school and, and we can't do anything about it. So I think there's still this uh, struggle to ensure that girls and women have the same opportunities to play baseball as the, as the boys and men. But I feel that, you know, we've had a lot of success as women building up, you know, more opportunity, more freedom. You know, we all stand on the shoulders of others, you know. But, <laughs> so I, I couldn't just compare it, compare it like in an isolated incident. You know, we've had women's rights movements and so on. So 1943 was a long time ago. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Baseball for All and how the organization has changed over the years and how its scope has has changed or broadened since it was founded. Yeah, so I started what is now Baseball for All back when I was 23. You know, I had a baby and I just knew I wanted to create a better future for her if she wanted to play. And so um, originally I started taking teams, girls teams and playing at Cooperstown Dreams Park with the boys. And then I kind of realized if I could start a girls team. I could teach you how to start a girls baseball team in your community. And with that model in mind, we held the first national girls baseball tournament in 2015. And so that's significant because that's since then, Major League Baseball has come forward supporting girls baseball. They run girls baseball programs. Team USA has never been stronger. And so it's uh, it's growing. It's definitely, you know, to me at a tipping point where real progress is about to happen, where more and more people are like, oh, wait a minute, why aren't girls playing baseball? You know, so so I'm very excited to see the, the, the movement that's coming quickly, if that makes sense to you. It's, it's slow, but it's like moving faster than ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that even just in my lifetime, I'm just old enough where, you know, girls playing, either playing Little League or playing past Little League was, you know, sort of really variable and often not a possibility. And now I have little nieces and that's not true where they live anymore. So even just in my lifetime, it has moved significantly and in a positive direction. Oh, I think, yeah, it's absolutely in a more positive direction. And I would just say that like through baseball for all our girls, most of our girls are still the only girls in their leagues, in their teams. But now they have a community that tells them that, you know, anything's possible. There's now girls they can look up to. I mean, Kelsey Whitmore is playing in the Atlantic League, but there's also girls playing uh, college baseball. So it's all about representation and the more representation there is not do just the girls realize they can play baseball, but then 
the, the men in power realize that, hey, girls should play baseball. Yeah. You know, how, how can we be more uh, welcoming and how can we uh, grow this game? Not just for girls, but like when girls and boys play together, you know, the world becomes better. You know, league, <laughs> leagues get more people understand equality and, and everyone gets learns to get along. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the presence of women in coaching roles and player development roles, et cetera, in the majors or in affiliated men's baseball or what is currently men's baseball is only one way to gauge progress. But it seems like even in the years since you broke into those ranks, whether it was in indie ball in 2009 or throwing BP for Cleveland in 2011 or then coaching with the A's in 2015 and other teams subsequently, it seems like there are a lot more women in coaching roles and player development roles, some in the majors, some in the minors, in affiliated ball. That seems to have happened quite quickly in recent years. I mean, belatedly and maybe still not enough, but just the presence in the coaching ranks and also in the front office as well. I don't know if it's a tipping point, but it, it does seem to have really taken off in just the past few years. Yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody thought I was crazy. I remember being about 15, 16, and I told my coach I wanted to be a college baseball coach. And he was like, he just laughed at me and said, no man would listen to a woman on a baseball field. And, you know, I was just like, well, at first I was really embarrassed. Then I started thinking, well, how am I going to prove I'm wrong? And then and then I went on and, and spent three years as assistant coach at Springfield College while I was getting my PhD. And so I'm, I'm super proud that now now there's over a dozen women coaching pro baseball. And I know it's more to come and that there's a true path uh, for for girls to know, hey, if I do this, there's a good chance that I can get hired. Whereas before it was like, for me, it was like, if I bang my head against the wall enough times, will it move an inch? Mm. And so I always knew that, you know, I'd be banging my head on the wall and, and others would be able to get the full advantage of being in it. But uh, it's great to see uh, there's never been a better time to get hired for baseball ops jobs and coaching jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really excited to see where that goes because I, I just truly believe that diversity helps teams win. And we get the question a lot, as maybe you do too, about when will we see a woman playing in the majors or getting drafted or signed by a team in affiliated ball, et cetera. And those are worthwhile goals, I guess. They're not the only goals, but I do wonder whether you think there should be a priority on that or is it more important to focus on, let's say, women playing at lower levels in an amateur ball and in college or even maybe having a domestic pro league? I mean, not that these things are mutually exclusive and maybe they actually go hand in hand, but I guess other than continuing to have that increased presence in the majors or with major league organizations, what are some of the other things that people are or should be setting their sights on? Yeah, I think it's a big question. I mean, the first is we have to go back to the, the girl in high school is being told she can't play, right? We have to solve that issue that girls are being told still today in 2022 that, that they can't play. And I've had as young as seven years old, a girl having to fight for the right to be in a league. So I think that's the biggest question is systemically, how are we making sure girls have the opportunity to play and develop just like the boys do? Of course, um, I'd love to see Kelsey Whitmore get signed. I mean, she's already proved she can play at single A, maybe double A with the Atlantic Ferry Hawks. So I guess it would be actually the Staten Island Ferry Hawks with the Atlantic League. But I think a better a better move would be a women's pro league, just like the WNBA. Um, instead mm-hmm. of waiting for one woman you know, to prove that she can compete with men, why don't we just celebrate women who can 
can play and give give the most opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think a women's a women's pro league would be better. I'm very cautious about how women athletes are often like, well, their value is in can they compete with boys and men? Yeah. And and, and sometimes they can and sometimes they can't. I mean, I'm better than my brother. Doesn't <laughs> make my brother any less than than a man. I'm just better than him. <laughs> so you know, women athletes are valid in their own right. And, yeah. and the comparison to men doesn't need to happen to have that validation. Mm-hmm. And what are the options in terms of international competition, whether it's pro leagues overseas or just actual international competitions? I know you've coached in the WBC, for instance, in men's baseball, but in terms of women's international competition or, or pro leagues outside the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, women's baseball has really grown in the last 15 years. Internationally, I mean, Japan is just number one. They're, they're phenomenal. But, you know, Australia now has John Viev, who's throwing, I think, low 80s as a lefty in the Australian Developmental League. Uh, and that was caught on video and everyone was seeing that. So if I was a lefty and I was 17, you know, throwing low 80s, I would think I'd have a chance to get signed. <laughs> so I think a lot's happening. And Team USA just played a friendship series with uh, Team Canada up in uh, Thunder Bay in Canada. So it's exciting to see how good these women are getting. And it, it's not surprising to me, the more women that play, the more, you know, the more talent you're going to see. So I think just a league. I'd love to see a league in the U.S. because I'd love to be a part of it and, and you know, get to take my daughter and, you know, go get some popcorn and watch women play baseball. That'd be awesome. <laughs> And I wanted to ask one more question about the show, which is that there's a lot of baseball in almost every episode, but I wonder if those were all filmed out of sequence because a lot of them take place, it seems like, in the same field. I wonder whether <laughs> you compressed a lot of things and filmed scenes for many episodes on the same day or you know, trying to just streamline the production schedule as much as possible. So that's a, that's, it's not a complicated question, but it's kind of a complicated question. <laughs> No, all the games weren't at the same field, but it does feel like that. So it rained a lot in Pittsburgh. Nobody, mm. nobody knew that. And so, um, <laughs> like, there was one field we'd come at, and it just like every time we got to the field, it would rain. It'd be just enough to get everyone, you know, in their costume and their makeup, and then have it rain. So some of it was out of sequence because because of that. Like we had to do make up for those rain times and and film near the end. So I'm sure if you looked really carefully, you might see like the trees changing within the scenes, like it being fall versus summer. Mm. But that's basically it. There's just a lot of home games. <laughs> we just play at home a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and will there be, you mentioned that you've had one other project since the League of Their Own. Do you have others on deck? Or are there going to be more baseball coordinator opportunities for you in the future? Well, first, I hope, yeah, you know, obviously that a League of Their Own gets picked up. <laughs> I think there's still stories to tell. I would love to continue doing baseball coordinating. I really love how I get to use all the knowledge that I've compiled over these years and use it in a new domain and yet still get to s- spread the game of baseball. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what would be next. Hopefully it's it's a league of their own and, and then we, we move forward from there. Yeah, and it must be gratifying to have it out in the world. We're talking to you on Tuesday, and the series just came out Friday, so I'm sure people are still working their way through it. But what have you heard from people who have seen it so far after, I guess, having to just sit on everything you knew that was in the series for (laughs) probably many months, if not more? Yeah, it's a long time to wait. Well, it's the number one show on Amazon right now. Mm-hmm. in the u.s so that's fantastic 
there's a lot of queer narrative in, in mm-hmm. the show. And so for a lot of people, it's, it's the show they've always wanted to see. And we're getting that feedback. All you have to do is look on, on Twitter and see, and see just like, this is amazing. This is, this is what I needed to see when I was a kid. You know, and then there's others, of course, who want it to be just like the movie. Mm-hmm. And it, it's purposely not just like the movie. You know, it's, it was time to explore some of the topics that Penny Marshall just couldn't do um, yeah. in the 90s. So I'm very proud of Leroy in it, and I think it definitely deserves a season two, and, and people want to know more about these characters and where they go. Do you have an opinion on whether Dottie dropped the ball on purpose? <laughs> have oh, you been I asked this a million times? <laughs> yeah. So I absolutely have an opinion because I pitched against my brother. Uh-huh. So I think he was probably 11 and I was 12 and I pitched against him. And it's like a 3-2 count. And it never occurred to me that I should walk him. You know, I just threw the <laughs> ball and I struck him out. And, you know, so... I think, I think, you know, that's a brother-sister duo. I just think you're a competitor out there and you kind of forget who, who you're playing against. I mean, I knew for a second, but then you were like, oh, it's 3-2. I, you know, I can't let this guy walk. <laughs> so I, I, I think as a competitor, she didn't drop the ball. On <laughs> Seems like Maggie must have a, a less competitive relationship with your sister or something. Cause <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't both play the same sport. We were, you know, doing different enough stuff that I don't think we had the the same fertile ground to nurture that competitive spirit in beyond just being siblings. So maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. If she were blogging for fan graphs, maybe you would be very exacting in your hyphen <laughs> yeah, placement you or something. <laughs> there you go. I guess editing is not really a competitive activity. No, generally. it should hopefully be collaborative, <laughs> hopefully. Well, yeah. I think everything can be competitive. <laughs> Um, so Justine, do you have a favorite baseball scene or one that you're proudest of or that took the most work, even if it's not apparent on the screen? I mean, I think I don't want to put any spoiler alerts out there, but I really love Max's story. Yes, we did too. I really, you know, identify with the idea of having a dream and and the world telling you it's crazy. So I identify with that part of the storyline. And so I really love watching her and, um, I just, I don't want to give it up, but Watch mm-hmm. to the end, and I think you'll you'll agree with me. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, for me, there's just triumphs throughout the whole show because I worked with an actor, and you know, for their scene, and they got their scene right, they look good, and so I'm so excited for them, you know. And then it's the next actor in their scene, so you know, almost everyone has a big moment, and so you know, I just I just love to see them succeed, you know. And when when you see it, and they film it, and the and the director yells cut, you know, I'm out there with a big hug. You know, saying great job because I'm I'm that excited for them. I know they put mm-hmm. the work in. Yeah. Well, you can find the series, of course, on Amazon Prime Video. You can find Justine on Twitter at Justine Baseball. You can find Baseball for All on Twitter at Baseball for underscore all. And the websites are JustineSiegel.com and BaseballForAll.com. Are there any other resources or places to find information either about Baseball for All or the show or anything else you want to plug while we have you? Oh, I think, it, you know, if you want to know more, go to our website. You have the social media handles and League on Prime is putting out great content as well about the show. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for filling us in a bit on the process and good luck with a renewal and any future baseball coordinating efforts that might be ahead of you. Thank you.
All right, and just so you all know, if you hear this in time to take advantage, the cast and crew of A League of Their Own are hosting a season one finale Twitter watch party on Wednesday, August 17th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Check the hashtag League Watch Party. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free aside from our Stathead sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. Roland Smith, Kathy Harden, Eric Zaborzin, Zachary Morgenstern, and Owen Barron. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group, where some people are already watching A League of Their Own and talking about tons of other stuff. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes hosted by Meg and yours truly, as well as discounts on t-shirts, playoff live streams, and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you a little later this week. in this